If you haven't been here this summer or the past couple weeks, um, you won't know, but we've been given the opportunity for a few guys that have gone through what we call the preaching cohort. So they've spent the past year getting together once a month, preaching short 10, 20 minute sermons to each other, going through a bunch of content. And I had the privilege of doing that with those guys. Um, so I'm the last one, uh, if you will, from that and the last uh, guy that gets to preach. Uh, even though I've done this before and pridefully, I probably could have said to Chris, like, no, no, I, I don't think I really need that. But this past year has been one good for my pride uh, and just a good reminder that you know, we never really are a completed product, right? There's always room to grow. Uh, and it's actually like, you know, Jesus was described as a humble servant who laid down his life to come down to, heaven, to earth from heaven, right? Um, and he loves seeing that same humility in his people. So just encourage you, um, submit yourself to teaching and preaching like this, but in all aspects of your life, because it's really good for you. Um, but the past two weeks, uh, we had Andrew Roper a couple weeks ago um, and Adam Davies last week, and they've really set the stage um, for what we're going to go through today. So I really hope you had a chance to listen to the podcast, go back, watch the videos, um, check those out if you haven't. The big question, though, for today uh, is, are you for Jesus or against him? This is what I want us all to chew on and think about as we go through this passage today, and I'll give you the answer right away. Um, so if you're paying attention, write down the notes. But it's once we understand who Jesus is, there is no room for indecision. I'll say it again. Once we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, there is no room for indecision in our lives. So I'll read our passage today. Um, let's, let's read the whole thing because it's good to hear from God's words. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, and we're going to unpack it as we go. Uh, but hopefully this uh, whets your appetite. So it says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed... He may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, um, I pray that as we dive into this text, that we will be amazed and inspired by your works, that our hearts will remain soft, and that we will heed your warning. Um, this is a harsh word at the end, um, but I pray that your spirit of peace will reign, and yeah, speak to those that feel any fear or anxiety about this, um, but also challenge us, challenge us to this point of decision for or against you. Um, so bless this sermon. 
Amen. Amen. You guys excited about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Nice, light, summer preaching. Uh, it's going to be great. We're going to sing and dance at the end of this one. Uh, let's dive in. So it starts off with, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. So another story of Jesus coming and healing. We've seen this the past couple weeks, and the rest of chapter 12, like I alluded to, sets the stage for this. Uh, but it really is setting the stage for the confrontation we're going to see later in these passages. But just as a reminder, a few weeks ago, Jesus came and he healed the man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. Pharisees upset about this. Um, they're challenging Jesus, saying, hey, that, that's like working on the Sabbath. That's not allowed. Um, you know, Jesus argues back. He wins the argument. Don't argue with Jesus. Moral of the story. Um, and then the next week, uh, or so the week before that, actually, was picking grain on the Sabbath. Again, his disciples are hungry. They're picking grain. Jesus uh, rebutes them and says, no, um, you know, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I define these things. And finally, last week, uh, Adam took us um, through Jesus withdrawing from the scheming Pharisees uh, and how he prophesies. And he ties Jesus back to uh, this verse in Isaiah about uh, God's chosen servant who's going to come and bring justice and hope to both Jew and Gentile. Uh, and it was just a great picture. It was really exciting. If you haven't listened to Adam's sermon, go back and listen to it because uh, he really brings it all together and gets you excited about uh, the promise of the Savior to come. Uh, but he's not the Savior the Pharisees wanted or expected. Uh, and that's what's been building in this epic confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so the miraculous healing at the beginning of this chapter, it's almost brushed aside, right? It's one verse out of, out of the ten, and it just happens. Uh, uh, but let's look at their responses to this healing. Jesus doesn't dive into that, but he's really, the author Matthew is really interested in showing how the crowd and the Pharisees react to this and how Jesus responds back to them. So in verse 23, it continues on, it says, All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So let's look at the crowd first. They're amazed. They're amazed by this healing, and that's great. Uh, we can't stop noticing how striking Jesus is in his actions and his miracles, right? It's easy to become numb to that, but the crowd is not. Because this is just a clear demonstration of Jesus' power and a proclamation of his kingdom. And what his kingdom is going to look like with healings and freedom and all these amazing things. So don't miss the amazement of the crowd, because uh, it's great. But they follow up with this question. Can this be the son of David? So if you're familiar with King David, Adam went through this last week, but he was you know, the great king in Israel's history. The king they all looked forward to. He ruled over a time of prosperity and wealth and knowledge. And it was just really good uh, for the Israelites. That would have made up this crowd. So they always looked back to that. He was a warrior king. He defeated their enemies. He brought prosperity to all. So even in their amazement, the crowds can't quite reconcile this Jesus with the son of David that they're looking for, this warrior king that they desire to see. Uh, they want a king who's going to come and fix their current political state of the Romans ruling over them and bring back that golden age. And Jesus doesn't fit these expectations, though. He promises something different than that, but ultimately better, and they're having a hard time figuring that out. So whenever I see the crowds, I always want to ask myself, where am I like the crowd? Where are we like the crowd in our lives? Um, you know, where are we amazed by Jesus at times, but also confused or doubting or, or maybe frustrated with him because he doesn't quite fit our mold, right? So 
So where do our expect, expectations of Jesus not line up with reality? Uh, and I won't dive deep into this point, but it's some questions that came to mind, um, some stereotypical pictures of Jesus that I just wanted to ask us and see if these are the Jesus in our head. So maybe Jesus is just to get at a hell-free card for you, right? You come here, you do your due diligence, uh, mainly so you don't have to worry about what happens when you die. Or maybe he is just your path to health and wealth, right? Our culture loves those things. We desire those things. Jesus, the guy that owns everything, can do all these healings. I'm going to you know, hitch up to his wagon, get on board that train. Sounds good. Maybe he's just our, our medicine and in times of depression and need. We get to the end of ourselves and just feel really down. Instead of going to the ice cream, you go to Jesus. So the question is, have you shaped Jesus in your life, your picture of Jesus in your life, just to best meet your needs? Have you molded him in just to shape and fill one specific hole in your life? Has it become just a means to an end? And while the crowds are amazed with Jesus, their question, can this be the son of David, points to them doing this. They're looking for a means to an end. They're looking for something for their shallow, narrow problem instead of recognizing a God who wants to reconcile and save the whole world. And if you find yourself frustrated, confused, not getting what you want and blaming Jesus for that, You've likely done the same thing. And the call on us is to keep the amazement of the crowd. Come, worship Jesus, listen to these stories, be amazed, be wowed by him, but leave behind the frustration and confusion and lacking. <clears throat> we need to let who Jesus actually is, what he actually does, amaze us and shape us. So that's the crowd. That's probably a lot of us in this story. Um, so Jesus is going to spend a lot of time on the Pharisees, though. So let's look at their reaction. So the Pharisees in verse 24 says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So another word, some translations will just use Satan here. God's enemy, the liar, the deceiver, the big bad guy throughout all of scripture, all the Bible. And the Pharisees here, they're outright rejecting Jesus by calling him Satan. And they're accusing him of sorcery and working with demons. This is really offensive. This is a harsh accusation against him. And we brush over it. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't grate on us. But the Pharisees saying this would have been shocking and grating to the crowds, to each other. Uh, the practice of, you know, practicing magic, like they're accusing Jesus of, was punishable by stoning. And that's not like the West Coast stonering. Um, it's literally taking rocks and pummeling someone to death. Which you can imagine, um, you know, that's the ultimate capital punishment along with crucifixion back then. And so they're making this accusation of Jesus, fully knowing how offensive it is and how serious it is. And the true heart of the Pharisees is being revealed here. There's an evil that lives in them. That they could confuse God's work with the work of Satan. Um, well, let's just take a sec, though, to look at 
you know, how drastically different the spirit of God is and his fruit versus the spirit of flesh and the evil that Satan rules over. So obviously we have the benefit of looking throughout all scriptures. So um, let's, I'll just go quickly into Galatians just to read a list so you guys can get a sense of how starkly different these things are. So this is Galatians 5, 19 through 23. It says, now the work of the flesh, that's this evil work, the work of Satan, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Those sound like the Pharisees. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds like the Pharisees a lot of time. But the fruit of the Spirit... When God's spirit is at work, these are the things you will see. Says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I think we'd all agree. Jesus' work is clearly the work of the spirit. It's clearly fruitful, just like that list defines the spirit as fruitful. And the Pharisees, as they've followed Jesus around, they've watched his healings, they've seen his proclamations, they've seen what his ministry is like, um, they'd really have to be fools to not see this fruit in what Jesus has been doing and to recognize this. And yet they are threatened by him. They're threatened by his authority versus theirs, by his picture of the kingdom versus what they think it should be. And so they stoop to these extreme measures, these extreme accusations against Jesus. Because they want to hold so tightly to that. So they knew exactly what they were doing and calling a good thing evil. But the desire for power and control was stronger. So just like we asked ourselves, are we the crowd? Probably have to dig pretty deep to ask ourselves the question, is this us? Do we have these pharisaical tendencies in us? Maybe not to the extreme that we see here. But do we slander others to undermine the work of Jesus? Do we let our desire for control overpower what is good and right? Is it more important for us to maintain our kingdoms or to give honor to the true king and Jesus? I won't dive much deeper into this because this isn't really where this passage is going. But I, my point is, we so often think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. They're not us. They're the ones that we can ridicule and make fun of and just think, oh, they're so stupid. Why didn't they get it? But in reality, their desires and motivations so easily live in us. It's so easily verbal up and come from this place of, you know, righteousness and, and holiness that is placed in the wrong things. So we need to constantly be examining our hearts. Because as we'll see, Jesus has very harsh words for those that follow down the path of these Pharisees. So we need to hope that we're like the crowd, but inspect our hearts in case we're the Pharisees. So Jesus cannot let these Pharisees get away with such serious accusations. And he has a very pointed response to them. So in verse 25, we'll continue reading on. 
Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, can't hide stuff from Jesus. He didn't say that, I said that. So knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself, itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus is really dives right in. He points to how desperate and ridiculous the Pharisees' reasoning is. Strength is brought through unity. Jesus desires that for his church. He prays that through his church. And so the fact that Satan was trying to use his own power to cast out his own minions, there's division. Disunity leads to weakness and crumbling. So the Pharisees' claim is folly. Why would Satan use his own power to defeat himself? Jesus continues on. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Jesus turns it on the Pharisees. So just in case you aren't familiar with all the Pharisee groups back in the day, um, uh, you know, there was actually a group of them that would go around casting out demons and did that under the umbrella of the Pharisees uh, with their approval. Um, so it was an acceptable practice. And they could do it with a power that wasn't Satan's power. So Jesus asked the question, by whom do your sons cast them out? He traps them. He says, your reasoning is faulty. It's wrong. Don't try and outsmart Jesus. He usually wins. Um, the Pharisees are learning that the hard way. He goes on in verse 28, where he says right at the end of verse 7, Therefore they will be your judges. Let your own sons judge your false accusations, because you're wrong. He goes on in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Philosopher Jesus is awesome. He's taken this little accusation of the Pharisees and he's completely turned it around to exalt him himself and, and to prove his point, to point to the kingdom. He's cornered the Pharisees. They can no longer call his work satanic because their own people do them. And they need to acknowledge that it's God's spirit at work because it's Satan's enemy that provides Jesus the power, that would cast out demons, that want to see Satan's kingdom destroyed, and Satan's enemy is God. It's the Father. It's God's Spirit. So Jesus leaves this question, but if it is the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is, we've seen this theme of the kingdom all through Matthew. It's going to continue on. Uh, it's this big idea that Jesus is a conquering king who's coming in to bring his kingdom of righteousness and justice and reconciliation to the Jews and to the whole world. Uh, no longer sacrifices and ritual is needed. Uh, God's chosen people now becomes his church. Everybody that accepts Jesus' reconciliation, uh, that calls him Lord, that becomes his servant, that joins his kingdom. And there's this epic battle happening right now between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. These kingdoms are colliding. The Pharisees unwittingly are proposing Satan's kingdom and trying to build it up. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is better. 
they're calling into question his justice. This is at the heart of the insult they're, they're bringing towards Jesus, and part of the accusation they're laying at his feet. So do we recognize where God's kingdom challenges our kingdoms? The Pharisees are blind to this. Maybe they're not, actually. We'll get into that more later on. They recognize there's a challenge to their authority, to a challenge to something they have built. Jesus is saying there's something different, there's something better, something stronger, there's something more powerful. There's God's kingdom. And it comes in and it challenges them in the same way it comes in and challenges us. So as I prepped for today, you know, I thought of 10 different examples of how this this plays out. Um, but one stood out to me. And it's one among many, but it's one area that I see in my own life, that I see in the lives of all of us, um, where there's this clash, where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world clash and vie for a part of us. And it's our attention, what we pay attention to. And there's an epic battle going on in our culture right now for this, right? Everybody wants our eyes. They want our mind space. They want it on their website, on their app, on their streaming services. And we live in this age where companies care about, you know, subscription growth and daily active users more than profit right away because those things will eventually lead to profit. But they want our mind space. Our phones are training us to be constantly scrolling and updating. They're demanding our attention. Uh, I want to pull my phone out right now just to look at the time, right? But no, then uh, there might be a few things I need to look at, a few notifications. Half an hour later, you know, we kind of come up for air again. And this is why companies are spending billions of dollars on self-driving cars, smart home, robot vacuums, all these things. Because it frees up our attention. I could talk about this stuff for hours because I'm a tech nerd. Um, uh, but it all points to this, right? This one simple thing where our attention has become a commodity, that we give out, give it to our employers to help them make money. We come home, we give a little bit to Netflix, give a little bit to Facebook, give a little bit to Google. Our spouse and our kids can have the scraps. Um, we just give out our commodity, uh, our attention as a commodity. So we ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, what is regularly demanding our attention and what are we spending it on? Feel the tug of your phone in your pocket or in your cup holder, whatever it is right now, and recognize what that is. It's something vying for your attention, demanding that you feed it and pay it with a little bit of this precious commodity that you have. could be many different things. But the first step is just starting to acknowledge it. Acknowledge what you give it up to, because we have to give it up. But there's room for rest and leisure and, and Netflixing. But recognize, just like... We tithe our money, we tithe our attention. We give our attention to certain things, and Jesus is asking for a piece of it. His kingdom actually deserves our attention. The crowds were amazed by what his kingdom proclaimed and demonstrated. We need to be so amazed that we value giving Jesus our attention. The issue is it's not loud and flashy doesn't come with an app or notifications or scrolling updates. Jesus is quiet and humble in so many ways. 
It's so worthy, so rich and deep. He wants to break into our mind space. He wants his spirit to work in us, to work in you, to work in me. But he needs our attention to do that. We so often miss out what the spirit is doing around us because we're distracted. So why? Why would we do such a thing? If you're a skeptic, or maybe you think this is enough attention coming on a week, listen to a podcast, being in a CG, why would you give him more? Why would you do such a thing? Let's continue on into verse 29. So Jesus talking about Satan, dividing kingdom, all that stuff, kind of switches the analogy a little bit, gives us a different picture. It says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So he uses this picture of busting into a, you know, I picture like muscle weightlifter house, this big strong man breaks in there, ties him up, binds him, makes him sit on the side while he plunders and takes and does what he wants with that house, with that little kingdom he had. So who's the strong man in this picture? Satan. Who's the burglar? Never thought I would be talking about burglar Jesus, but um, he's the one that comes in and binds as the ability to plunder and destroy Satan's kingdom, Satan's household. He's the victorious king. Uh, there's a quote I came across by a guy named R.T. France. He says, Satan is powerless before the victorious incursion of God's kingdom in Jesus' ministry of deliverance. It's amazing. I rested a lot this week on this little, this little chunk because it points to the power of Jesus. It points to this victorious king that we follow and serve. It points to Jesus' gospel, his good news, that he saw a world that was broken, full of hurt and evil. And as a creator that loves and cares for that, he had to intercede. He couldn't sit back and do nothing. So he sends Jesus, this victorious but servant king, to die and conquer that. And through that act of death, bring restoration and justice and reconciliation to a broken world. There's times where we just need to rest in this, to let that soak in, to celebrate that, to pay attention to it, because Jesus is worth paying attention to. He fills us up in a way that nothing else in this world can. He fixes a brokenness in us that we may not even recognize or realizes there because we've tried to stuff it full of wealth or entertainment or sex or food or whatever it is. As we remove that garbage and let Jesus fill that place, we start to get a picture, a grasp, a feeling of what his kingdom is like, of why we would give our attention to him. It's awesome. It's amazing. So if you don't hear anything else, hear that Jesus is worth paying attention to. And because the crowds and the Pharisees actually got, they saw miraculous proof. 
more than most of us likely have ever seen in this room of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like, they have a compelling, amazing sign of who Jesus is, of why he's worthy of their attention. Because of that, Jesus takes this challenge to them even further. Besides just pointing out the folly of their accusation, he's going to show them the consequences. So in verse 30, it says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus challenges the crowds, the Pharisees, and us to a decision. He wants us to take what we know, what we've seen of him, what we've heard of him, what we know about him, and decide. There's no room for apathy. R.T. France says it this way, the, in this conflict, neutrality is impossible. We can't be in the middle. We can't be apathetic. We can't sit on the fence. And understanding the second half of this verse really brings the whole thing into clarity. The second half is, whoever does not gather with me scatters. So if you aren't familiar with shepherding um, 2,000 years ago, or even today, that's where this imagery comes from. So animals tend to scatter. um, And as a shepherd or a community of shepherds, if any person takes no part in gathering the scattered members, the scattered sheep, he, in effect, scatters them because that's their natural state. They wander. And so by doing nothing, he is actually casting his vote in favor of scattering. Jesus is saying our indecision, our lack of action, our choice not to participate or help, casts our vote in favor of scattering against his kingdom. So we are all naturally sinful and evil people. I see it in myself every day. I see it in all of you all the time. You can't hide it. Nice try. Um, But we're prone to evil. We're prone to wandering just like sheep. Just like sheep, we need to submit to a shepherd. We need someone to guide us and lovingly care for us and point us in the right direction. That's Jesus. That's his spirit. And we need to, unlike a sheep, sheep are pretty dumb. We're pretty dumb sometimes too. But we have this free will, this power to decide if we will submit to Jesus. We can give him our attention or choose to be distracted and wander. So that means for us, figuring out who Jesus is becomes of utmost importance. Because if we choose to wander, to be apathetic, to sit on the fence, then we're actually saying we're against him. We're actually contributing to the sinful wandering of ourselves and to others around us. And I want to recognize for those of you that haven't made this decision, that haven't put their yes for Jesus, who haven't decided to be for him, that this isn't something to be taken lightly. This isn't something to do without asking yourselves hard questions, without diving deep and figuring out how Jesus is. Um, So most of us have likely taken that step. But for those that haven't, even those that have, we need to let Jesus pursue us. You need to let Jesus pursue you as you think through this decision. You need to listen to his word. Come, listen to sermons, devour podcasts. Some of my favorite stories around West Village are when people are 
just on this point of decision or just about to make it, they come and like, yeah, I just finished listening to the past five years of podcasts in a month. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of preaching that you just consumed. But they're so hungry. They so want to see what Jesus is like before they make this decision or after they've just made it. So listen to sermons. Find out what Jesus is like. Let him pursue you by reading his word. Experience what his kingdom is like by hanging out with his church, seeing what the community of believers is like. Just know that you can't sit on the fence forever. He is a good king. He wants your allegiance. He's worthy of your attention. So do your due diligence. Go through the facts. Get to know him and make a decision. And for those of us that have declared for Jesus, there's an implication here for us. We now get the privilege of helping him gather the lost sheep. We get to help him of the gathering of the scattered, pursuing the lost and the broken. We get to be missionaries. We get to go out with Jesus into a lost world and help proclaim and demonstrate the good news that he brings of his kingdom, of healing and restoration. This is an amazing task that we get to participate in with him. So don't take that lightly. He calls us to go show our neighbors, those people that you don't like next door because their dog barks all the time, your coworkers. <laughs> that uh, GPS signal's been lost. Sorry, I'm distracted now. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends that don't know Jesus, they've been placed in your path for a reason. Jesus wants to soften your heart towards them. He wants you to see them as lost sheep that need their shepherd. He wants your help in bringing them back to that, to showing them the good shepherd and the good king, to letting them participate in his church and this expression of his kingdom, seeing what that life is like. So if you've said yes to Jesus, you've said yes to his mission. You can't say yes to Jesus come to a gathering, and go about your life and ignore his mission. Your life is no longer your own. Every single thing you do is reshaped through this lens of helping Jesus on his mission. Paying your bills, planning your vacations, planning your kids' activities, planning your career path, where you're going to live, who you're going to spend time with, all that comes under the purview of Jesus and his mission. He lays claim to all of it. And I hope that makes you uncomfortable a little bit. Because what Jesus desires become what we desire. Where Jesus sends us, we go. Because we've given him our yes. We've said we are for him. And if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, then you're probably not really feel, realizing that this means death to yourself. Death to your own priorities and passions. And that's the call. That's what it means to be for Jesus. It's a bold proclamation. Hopefully you all feel the weight of it. Hopefully as you leave here, you won't forget that. And that you'll feel your own desires and passions come up against Jesus's and have the opportunity on a daily basis to die to yourself and say yes to Jesus. That he increases in your life and you decrease. Because he's worthy of that.
He's proven throughout scriptures, throughout his actions, throughout dying for us, that he is a king with our best interests in mind. That he knows what we were created for and wants to help achieve that in our lives. So if you thought that was a bold proclamation, whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus turns it up to 11 in the next one. So in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. End on this happy note. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you've been in church for a while, you're a Bible nerd, you've probably studied this, I've heard of this. It's, just that it's this idea that there's an unforgivable sin. Before I unpack this, I want to make this really clear. Um, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's committed this sin. Uh, this is very unlikely that this is something you need to worry about. And really, when we hear this, instead of being scared by the, the second part, the unforgivable sin, we should actually be really comforted by the first part where it says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. You know, the blanket of what is covered is significantly bigger than this one instance of unforgiveness. Let's move in. So it says, therefore. So in light of all these things Jesus has said, of the healing and the Pharisees' accusation and Jesus' rebuttal, um, this is the consequence. This is what's going to happen. Because the Pharisees have been attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. Hugely offensive. And have been doing so, as Jesus makes plain, in such a way to reveal that they speak not out of ignorance or unbelief, uh, but this phrase I came across by a guy named D.A. Carson's, he says, but out of a conscious disputing of the indisputable. And this is at the heart of Jesus' judgment on the Pharisees, this conscious disputing of the indisputable. It says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be. So I read a lot of smart guys um, as I prepared for this, because I wanted to make sure I got this right um, and really understood this. And, and there's a couple quotes I came across, so... I'll uh, give props to these guys. And I'm just going to read this one from D.A. Carson. It goes like this. Instead, within the context of the larger argument, the first sin, that's this, all sins that will be forgiven, is rejection of the truth of the gospel. But there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin, the unforgivable sin, is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing. Thoughtfully, willfully and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcisms than that. So the Pharisees, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing and still chose to deny him and work against him. That's unforgivable. To put it concisely, uh, R.T. France says it like this. The difference then is this. Between failure to recognize the light and deliberate rejection of it once recognized. So it's fine if you're sitting here and haven't said yes to Jesus. 
his, his light hasn't fully been revealed to you. But once we have undeniable proof, once we have fully seen the light in a way that I don't experience, you know, we get glimpses of it. People say yes to Jesus on way more faith than the crowds. Crowds who shoved in their face and had a lot of proof. Once we have that inexcusable recognition of the light and then choose to say no, to deny that, to say that's the work of Satan, that is unforgivable. So do I need to worry about this? Do I need to contemplate and chew on this? As I said, I highly doubt it. As a great example, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul who wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament, before he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. He stoned people. He made it his life's work to root out this new sect of Christianity and put it to death. And yet Jesus intervenes. He meets him. He reveals himself to Paul in an undeniable way. And Paul says yes and goes on to be one of the most epic church planters in the history of the church. If Paul's sins can be forgiven, it shows you the extent of God's grace and how unique this circumstance of unforgivable sin is. Last quote here from a guy, another guy I read. This is matter of great importance pastorally pastorally, when we're caring for the church, that we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who is overwhelmed by the fear that he has committed this sin, that the fact that he is so troubled is itself a sure proof that he has not committed it. So if you don't care if you (laughs) committed this sin, then you might have something to worry about, but likely not even then. But if you're anxious about this, I want to relieve you of that. I don't want anybody to leave with that. This is for a very specific person who has undeniable evidence of who Jesus is and yet still works against him. This still seems harsh, though. Where's the Jesus that just offers big hugs to everybody? Where's hippie Jesus? Where's that picture of Jesus here? How can he draw such a firm line in the sand? Like I said earlier, we have to let the Bible picture of Jesus shape our picture of him. And we see here that he just cares so deeply about justice and reconciliation and righting of wrongs in this broken world that he can't stand people that see that fully revealed picture of his kingdom and yet choose to say no to that, that choose to work against that. He he just cares too much. He has such a passion to see the lost saved. That's why he has such a harsh word here. So why is this even important? Because we need to recognize the path that the Pharisees on wasn't one little choice. It was a life of conscious little steps to protect and own their kingdom And it's very unlikely we will ever get to this point where we've seen Jesus fully revealed and then deny him. But just be warned of the pharisaical tendencies that can live in us. And remember that who isn't for Jesus is against him. 
I'm going to invite the band up as I conclude here. I want to take us back to that question that we started with. Are you for Jesus or are you against him? If you have said yes, this is my king, I want to follow him, then give him everything. Give him your all. Commit your whole life to him. Commit to letting his mission define every single action of every single day of dying to yourself and glorifying him. And if you have yet to decide, if you find yourself coming to West Village for a week, two weeks, six months, you're just not sure. You're just not sure about this Jesus guy. You like hanging out with the people here. You like some mental stimulation from sermons, but you haven't planted your flag. Decide. Do your research, study his life, figure out who he is, hang out with his church, pray to him, and decide. Because being for Jesus will cost you everything, but it's worth it. And pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are a good shepherd who so desires to see his sheep come back to him to submit to him, to be cared for, to be loved, to be filled, to participate in the mission of bringing more lost ones back to you. So Spirit, I pray um, that as this word sinks in, you will inspire us. You will push us out if we have said yes to you to reshape our lives on your mission. You will challenge us if we are undecided with the evidences of your grace and your power and your majesty to decide for you. Thank you for this word. Amen.